I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be completing our study in Matthew's gospel this morning. I'll be away next Sunday, and uh, Jake Brown will be bringing uh, the ministry of the word to us from the story of the prodigal son. I'm looking forward to that. In the week following, I'll be here, but we'll actually have a church planter through the North American Mission Board uh, here presenting and and preaching in our service that morning, and so I'm looking forward uh, to that as well. This morning, as we walk through this text, we'll be considering our mission from Jesus the King. Our mission from Jesus the King. And what we'll see as a central truth as we walk through this text this morning is this, that Jesus' gospel work compels our gospel mission. Jesus' gospel work compels our gospel mission. So if you have a copy of God's word there, I invite you to follow along as we read together Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew writes, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, last Sunday, on the morning of the resurrection, we found the disciples huddled together in a room for fear of the Jews. That day they quaked in fear, and it's several weeks later that we find the disciples again huddled in a room together. But they huddled this time not in fear, but in anticipation. You see, Acts chapters 1 and 2 record for us the days following the resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus left his followers with a remarkable promise. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. In Acts chapters 1 and 2, we find the disciples waiting. Jesus taken back to heaven. In In Acts chapter 2, this promise comes to pass. The disciples are gathered together in a room, and as they sit there waiting all together, Luke tells us, the Holy Spirit comes upon them with power. And tongues of, as of fire appear on their heads. The sound of a mighty rushing wind fills the room. And the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus' disciples. But that moment, that appearance, that manifestation of the Spirit is not merely for some show, some display of power. Rather, it's a fulfillment for a particular purpose. Because you see in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, when Jesus predicts the Holy Spirit will come upon you, he says he's coming for this purpose, to fill us with power to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What happens in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is a recapitulation and an expansion of what we have here in our text in Matthew chapter 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And for two millennia, this has been our central mission. Make disciples of all nations. Jesus' gospel work, his death, his burial, his resurrection compels our mission to share this good news with the nations. And the first thing that we find in verses 16 and 17 is the disciples obeying Jesus' words. Obedience in verses 16 and 17. In Matthew 28, verse 7, we find an angel with, with Mary and Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And she tells him, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee, and that's where they'll find Jesus. 
Verse 10, Jesus tells these ladies the same thing. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and meet me at the mountain. Before Jesus even died in Matthew 26, verse 32, he says the same thing. After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So, verse 16, where do we find the disciples? In Galilee. Now, it's easy to miss the geographical transition that happens here, because we kind of read through words quickly, and we don't necessarily follow what happens. But in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey in what's commonly known as the triumphal entry. And for seven and a half chapters, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, but now we find him in Galilee. Now, Galilee is some distance away, all the way to the north in Israel. So if you track on this map in the south, you can see Judea. And in the region of Judea, you've got the city of Jerusalem. So now Jesus and his disciples have departed Jerusalem and traveled north to Galilee. Well, if you've tracked with us through the book of Matthew, you know that Galilee is important because it's Jesus' home region. And it's the disciples' home region. It's where Jesus has eaten, slept, taught. It's where he spent his time investing in his disciples. And now we find Jesus and his disciples back there for a crucial meeting at the close of his days here on earth. So, verse 16, the disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, by this time, Judas has passed off the scene. So we've got 11 disciples, not 12, and we find them at, at an unnamed mountain. Now, this mountain isn't really named anywhere in Scripture for us, but it's apparently a place familiar enough that both Jesus and his disciples could meet there at this mountain. Well, the disciples' response to Jesus' word, obedience, moves to worship in verse 17. When Mary and Mary Magdalene saw Jesus in verse 9, how did they respond? They fell at his feet and worshipped him. Well, in verse 17, we see the same response from the disciples. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But interestingly, not everyone responds with immediate worship. Some of them, our text tells us, doubt it. This word doubted literally means some hesitated. So what we've got here is we've got a group of disciples and some respond immediately with worship while others hesitate. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus' disciples are still huddled in a room waiting for news and the women from the tomb come and tell them that Jesus is risen. And on that day, they doubted the word from the women. In John uh, chapter 20, the disciples, by this time, most of them have seen Jesus in person, but Thomas hasn't. And Thomas is passed down through kind of popular lore as doubting Thomas because of what he says next. Unless I see with my own eyes where the nails have pierced his hands, unless I place my own fingers in the hole, unless I can touch the hole in his side, I will not believe. And Jesus famously shows up and he falls down and says, my Lord and my God. We call him doubting Thomas because he didn't believe without but in each case what we find is the moment a disciple sees jesus they respond in worship so what we have here in matthew 28 is a bit different because the disciples see jesus but not all worship some worship but some hesitate and i think there's a word of encouragement here for us I mean, think about who these men are. These are the original apostles. 
the original evangelists, the foundation on whom the history of the church is built. Some of them respond to this encounter with the risen Christ immediately with worship. This is the right response to Jesus. But others doubt. Remarkably, even the resurrection itself doesn't transform these men immediately into spiritual giants. And isn't that how the gospel often works? I mean, some people encounter the gospel, and the moment they hear the good news that Jesus Christ died to rescue us from our sin, it's like God is speaking to them, like they could be the only person in the room, the Spirit moves in their heart, and they trust Jesus. But other times, the Spirit moves in a different way. Sometimes it's a gradual process. It's not an immediate moment. Sometimes it's a child reared by Christian parents, hearing the gospel faithfully, looking back through time and knowing that there was a time they came to believe in Jesus, but not knowing exactly when that is. Other times, it's an adult who's heard the gospel over and over and over again, and at some point they realize God has remarkably changed their soul. But it's not as if they can point to a moment in time. Other times, it's someone who has heard the word for years as a believing Christian. Someone who has faith in Christ, and yet as they look at their life and, and honestly assess it before the Lord, it's generous to say it's been marked by ups and downs. Moments, highs, but also some doubting. You see, our Christian relationship with the Lord isn't always easily experienced, always easily described by a moment, a prayer, an experience, a point in time. And the, po- the important thing for all of us isn't whether there's a moment we can point to. There may be for some of us, there may not be for others, but whether we are relying on Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. That's the question for all of us. What will we do with Jesus? Sometimes faith pops up quickly, while other times it emerges slowly. Some worshiped, but some doubted. Now this moves us to Jesus' great claim in verse 18. He claims all authority. Now, there's authority, and then there's authority. Oftentimes, as, as uh, I was growing up, kids got older, and so kind of on our, in our line of nine children, the, the older children would be responsible when mom and dad were gone for the younger children. And one thing that frustrated me as the oldest son in my family is that Sometimes I just couldn't get my brothers and sisters to listen to me. But there was a difference between you better listen and dad showing up and saying, you better listen. You see, there's authority and then there's authority. Now, in the book of Matthew, much of what we had has been, has been a conflict about authority. You see, Jesus has been engaged in repeated conflicts with the Jewish religious leaders and also with Rome about authority. And Matthew has demonstrated over and over That Jesus has authority to teach. Jesus has authority over disease, demons, over death itself. Jesus has authority even over King David who calls him Lord. Jesus, though, claims a different kind of authority. Something far beyond any earthly kingdom. All authority, says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus claims sovereignty over everything. 
And the extent of his authority is vitally important because of the extent of the command that we see following. Just for a moment, look at verses 18, 19, and 20 and track the use of the word all in these verses. Verse 18, all authority. Verse 19, all nations. Verse 20, all I've commanded you. Verse 20 again, I'm with you always. Jesus claims universal authority for our universal mission. Abraham Kuyper, a pastor and prime minister in the Netherlands around the turn of the 19th century, famously said that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I mean, look up, look down, look out, look around, look everywhere. Jesus claims authority over all things. There's not a single inch of space in the universe that does not belong to Christ. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew emphasizes Jesus' authority. Yet now, even more explicitly than ever before, he claims authority, all authority. He's echoing a claim that he's already made in Matthew 11, verse 27. All things, he says, have been handed over to me by my Father. Now, there are debates in the church about how the sovereignty of God plays itself out from our perspective. But there can be no debate about how far it goes. All authority, Jesus says, over all things. Now, the irony of our debates is that they're often engaged in by arguing about our ideas rather than walking through what God's word says. Because God's word demonstrates that our mission is rooted in Jesus' authority. There there is no disconnect, scripturally speaking. His authority doesn't make us robots. It empowers us to do this. It's essential to our mission. He says all authority over everything He claims that, and then what does he say in verse 19? Go. Go, therefore. In other words, Jesus' authority compels our mission. His right to rule empowers us for what he calls us to do. If Jesus didn't rule all things, we couldn't engage in sharing the gospel with the same confidence. But Jesus did live a perfect life. Jesus did die a sacrificial death. Jesus did raise from the dead and conquer sin and death and hell. And Jesus does rule today. His authority empowers us for our mission. And our mission, he says, simply is to make disciples. He gives us three ways that we do this. Now, before we get to those three ways, we're going to get a little technical here. Now, I don't do this often, but it'll help us, I think, understand what's going on here. So, so hang with me. Pretty much... Every modern translation uh, translates verse 19 as some form of go therefore and make disciples. But what we have here in, this, in these verses is one governing command, make disciples. And then we have three connecting participles, by going, baptizing, and by teaching. Now most of our translations translate going as a command, and there are good grammatical reasons for this. When a participle like going is dependent on a command like make disciples, it takes on the force of that command, what what scholars call imperatival force. So the big governing idea here is that we are to make disciples by, Jesus says, going, baptizing, and teaching. Now, what's a disciple? It's not a word that you hear thrown around in everyday language, but it literally means a learner or a follower. So, to become a disciple of Jesus is to follow Jesus or to learn from Jesus. 
Well, how does this happen? 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul puts it this way. Follow me as I follow Christ. Or, or as some translations put it, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We make disciples by following Jesus and then inviting other people to follow us. Or, to use the other metaphor, learning, we are students in the classroom learning from Christ, and we invite others into the classroom of Christ with us. We invite them into this relationship. You see, people who are growing spiritually lead other people to the cross. We want to be a people who are spiritually growing. And you cannot be growing without overflowing in discipleship. You see, we want to be the kind of people that give people in our congregation and also in our community repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? Well, Jesus says there are three ways. Going, baptizing, teaching. First, going. So the first component of being a faithful disciple and a faithful disciple maker is to go. Now, look, we know that God doesn't call every single person go as in cross the sea to be a missionary but god calls every disciple to go with the gospel god advances his work through his gathered people the church so we establish we, we prioritize establishing strengthening local churches here and around the world as a congregation as a denomination as a convention we're committed to Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong, and Janie Chapman because of this. But it's not enough to simply pay others to do the work for us. You see, making disciples is our responsibility. We all engage in this work. And we all pray that God calls men and women to engage in the work of spreading the gospel and going to the farthest corners of the harvest field and tell the good news that Jesus saves. It is possible that God is calling someone here today to give their lives to this work. Is God calling you to reach the nations for Christ? He calls us all to reach the people around us. Now Jesus says we, we make disciples by going and also by baptizing. Baptizing, he says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the way the work of redemption works, the work, the work of living the perfect life, dying sacrificial death and rising again belongs to the Son. But the work of redemption in its entirety belongs to God in his entirety. It's thoroughly Trinitarian. It belongs to all three members of the Trinity. You see, the Father decreed and planned redemption. Jesus, the Son, accomplishes redemption. And the Spirit empowered Jesus for this mission and applies redemption to us, Scripture teaches. And baptism is one way, actually, of declaring that this is true. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is why we practice believer's baptism, or regenerate church membership. You see... You can't truly follow Christ if you don't know Christ by faith. So we baptize those who make credible professions of faith in Christ. Baptism is a public identification on the part of an individual that, hey, I've placed my faith in Jesus. But it's also more than that. Through the church, it's an agreement on the part of Jesus' other disciples that, hey, we see faith in Christ in you. 
It's looking at that individual and saying, yes, we see you as a follower of Christ. It's an agreement between an individual, hey, I place my faith in Christ, and the church, yes, we see Christ in you. Now, there are all sorts of debates, even among baptized, believers' Baptist churches, about when someone should be baptized. Uh, sometimes the minute a child can begin uh, approximating the words, yes, Jesus loves me, they're ready to baptize them. Um, others, you know, push it off out of caution and wait closer to adulthood. So how should we practice this? Well, to be baptized, there has to be a clear understanding of at least three things. Uh, the first thing is the most basic, and that is you must clearly understand the gospel. If you don't understand the gospel, you can't be a follower of Christ. You can't be saved until you understand the gospel. So the first thing is a clear understanding of the gospel. The second thing is a clear understanding of the meaning of baptism. In other words, we don't want someone, even who truly understands the gospel, to begin thinking that baptism would be a saving work. Or to think that baptism guarantees something that it doesn't. There must be a clear understanding of baptism. Thirdly, there should be a clear understanding of commitment, of membership to a local church. So uh, the way that scripture works, there's no 11th commandment about how and when we do this. But in terms of pastoral practice, uh, the way this works it out is I normally encourage children to wait until somewhere around the age of eight or nine to be baptized. Why is this? Because there should be a clear understanding of the gospel and a clear ability to articulate the gospel. Now, as I look back at my life, I genuinely think, you know, in terms of the, the process and the moment, I genuinely think I was saved at the age of four. My dad called me into his room, explained the gospel, and, and I can remember things about that experience. I think I was baptized around the age of six. But like many people who had that experience, as I got older, I experienced a time when I wondered if all that were true. When I wasn't sure about the connection between my present faith in Christ and that moment. And so what we want is a clear ability to articulate the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. And understanding that baptism is a public profession of faith, but also an agreement by the church that this has happened. So we shouldn't just baptize anyone and everyone without knowing they believe and live out the gospel. Because when you're baptized, what happens is you live out the gospel through partnership with a local church. This means that baptism is a covenant to believe the gospel, to live like you believe the gospel, and worship, serve, love, and disciple with other people who believe the gospel. Church membership is a covenant commitment lived out by being active and present in worship and discipleship with an identifiable group of believers under the authority of a local church. As part of our membership process and our membership class, we walk through, hey, kind of, what does it look like to be a member of Ashley River Baptist Church? The most basic expectation is attendance. In other words, you can't really be part of a local church if, if you don't attend the worship of that congregation. I mean, the basic requirements that we see in scripture are faith in christ and a commitment to gather with the church now of course it's ironic to be saying this in the moment that we're sitting here with about 25 percent of our people here now there are moments in culture in history where this is not possible either uh, because of medical reasons perhaps a global pandemic uh, perhaps uh, logistical reasons or family reasons 
But if we can wisely and safely be here, we should be here. That's part of what it means to follow Christ. So Jesus says we make disciples by going, by baptizing, and thirdly, by teaching. Now, this teaching isn't some generic idea of how to be a better person, how to have your best life now. What is it specifically that Jesus says we're to teach in verse 20? Teaching them to observe or keep all things that I have commanded you. In Acts uh, chapter 20, Paul is instructing the Ephesian elders and he puts it this way. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, what it means to follow Christ is that we make disciples by the power of the Spirit of God through the faithful teaching, preaching, and living out of the Word of God. And the central message of God's Word is the Gospel. The good news that a holy Creator God spoke all things into existence. And because He is the one who created all things, we are all accountable to Him as our Creator and as our Judge. But no sooner had God spoken creation into existence than our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, sinned. And in breaking God's law, broke the goodness of God's creation and fell into broken rebellion against our creator. And every human being since that time has been born into this world in a state of rebellion against our creator. And the history of redemption is a history of searching for a way to close this gap between the holy perfection of our creator God and our fallenness, our brokenness. And there is no way for a fallen, broken creation to meet God's infinitely holy standard. And so into this gap, God sent his own son, descended from heaven to become a perfect human being, lived the life that we should have lived, died the penalty that we should have paid, and rose again in our steads to conquer sin and death and hell. And what God's word says is that if you believe this, if you turn from your sin, eternal life can be yours through Christ. And if you're here this morning, without true faith in Christ, would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? You see, we're not here merely for some sort of worship experience, although there is worship taking place. We're not here merely for personal encouragement, although of course God's word should encourage us. Rather, we're here to follow Jesus and help one another take a step closer to Jesus. How do we do this? We receive the word And then we share that word with someone else. You see, we're not reservoirs. We're streams through which the word of God should flow. God works through the methods outlined in his word. There are times when, like Acts 2, God does miraculous things by his spirit. But we can't make those things happen. That's when God visits in his time and in his way. So how does God do this normally? God ordinarily works through his word by the power of his spirit. So in our worship, we focus on the word. We pray the word. We sing the word. We preach the word. We see the word in the ordinances. We read God's words aloud. Spending time with Jesus, to follow Jesus, means spending time in his word. You see... Giving life advice about how to be a better dad or mom or student or friend or kid is something that at some level we can all use. 
but it's not really sufficient. Or doing activities that are designed just to get kids or adults here without digging into the word itself is like propping up a dead plant. See, see if you can uh, follow this with me. Imagine that uh, you're a gardener. Spring, summer, you love planting a garden. And so you've got a tomato plant. Now, I got to tell you, personally, it's okay with me if all tomato plants die. I'm not a big fan of tomatoes, but just for the sake of the illustration, we'll hang with a tomato plant. And, you know, it's the middle of summer, and we've had a lot of rain recently, but we're about to head into a period where we, we won't have a lot of rain, and it gets real hot. When you get a lot of heat, not a lot of rain, what happens? The plant withers. And so you go out and, and you inspect your tomato plant. And your once flourishing plant is now withered and dying. So your response to this is to take some string and to tie it a little tighter to the stake. And, and, and as the branches start to wilt, you, you, you take something and you prop or tie those branches up. But you don't water it. You don't give it any nutrients. But you feel good because it's, it's propped up straight there. Was that a healthy plant? No. It's a withered, in some, in some cases, dead plant. You see, for that plant to truly flourish, for that plant to truly produce fruit, for that plant to grow as it's designed to grow, it needs the right nutrients. It needs water. It needs sunlight. You can't grow a healthy plant simply by binding that plant to a stake. It requires the right nutrients. And in the same way, Time in the Word is the central nutrient, the central ingredient to making disciples and being disciples. Digging into the Word is the key to growing in Christ. So this brings us finally to Jesus' promise for our mission. We will never do this alone. At the end of verse 20, Jesus gives a gigantic promise. And this promise is equal to the hugeness of the command that comes before. Go, Jesus says, and make disciples where? In all nations. And he follows it up with an equally huge promise. I am with you always. Our mission to all nations is empowered by our always present Savior. There's never anywhere we will go that Jesus will not be there too. If you track the history of redemption throughout scripture one thing that we see over and over and over and over again is a, per, a pattern related to promise fulfillment or prophecy fulfillment it's like this there's a little promise made and we see that promise fulfilled which demonstrates that there's a larger promise that's being made that we know will be fulfilled so for instance if you track God's people in the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 7 God tells Moses and Aaron to go stand before Pharaoh and what they're to do is demand the famous words, let my people go. And they promise that if Pharaoh doesn't, God will visit him with great acts of judgment. What follows that are the ten plagues. Well, how in the book of Exodus do we know that the plagues are going to happen? We know that the plagues are coming because of what happens first. God tells Moses and Aaron, Aaron, you throw down your staff and it's going to turn into a serpent, into a snake. And then you're going to pick it up and it's going to become a staff again. A little promise. And if it's fulfilled, we know the big fulfillment's coming. What happens? Aaron throws his staff down, it becomes a snake, he picks it up, it's fulfilled. So then what we know are Moses' words about the plagues, the great acts of judgment, they will come true. Okay, so why walk through all of this? Because the exact same thing is happening right here in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus 
told his disciples to go to Galilee, and they see him there. Now, on one level, there's nothing remarkable about this. They spent a lot of time in Galilee. So what do we find in verse 16? The 11 disciples went to Galilee and saw him there. Promise. Fulfillment. So at the end of verse 20, Jesus makes another promise. I will always be with you. And we know that this promise is true, not merely because God's word is always true, but also because the first promise came true. Jesus never leaves us. You may walk through the valley of the shadow of death itself, but your Savior will go there too. In Matthew 28, Jesus commands us, go make disciples of all nations. And Acts 1 provides a magnificent promise undergirding this command. The Holy Spirit himself will empower you for this mission. And we sit here today as evidence of the fact that not one word of God's promises have failed. All have come to pass. So what are the implications for us in terms of life and how we live it, disciples and how we make them? The bottom line is, that over time, our church has been too focused on activities and programs that we can draw a line to the gospel. I mean, there's a way to get there. And not focused enough on our central mission. Making disciples of Christ by going, baptizing, and teaching the word. We need greater focus on making disciples which means we need more time in the Word and less time distracted by other things. Now, what we're not doing is addressing whether you should read your Bible or not. You should. But what we're talking about here is that as a church, we've been far too distracted by things that, that are okay. Sometimes they're even good. But they're way out on the periphery and we've missed our central mission. And we must, it is imperative out of, out of obedience to Christ that we get back to our mission of being a gospel-centered church committed to Christ-centered worship and life-on-life discipleship because of this global mission. It's the final words of our Savior who has focused less on attractional events and focused more on equipping and mobilizing disciples with God's word. When was the last time that you as a member of this church shared gospel encouragement from the word of God with another Christian? Where you went from being a reservoir that kind of receives God's words to being a minister of grace to those who also need to receive God's word. When was the last time you had a meaningful conversation about the gospel with a non-Christian, with someone who apart from the intervention of God's grace in their life is dying and will perish under the judgment of God eternally? When was the last time you took what you know and you ministered God's grace, this good news, to someone else? When was the last time you as a follower of Christ took someone less mature in the faith and just helped them take one step closer to Jesus and invited this person, follow me, 
as I follow Christ. And as you do this, one part of following humans, as humans follow Jesus, is humans fall on the way there. But that's part of God's grace to us. It's an encouragement knowing that this person who you imagine to be perfect actually, like you, is a fallen, broken human being simply trying in a fallen world to do his best to follow Jesus. When was the last time we as a congregation had any meaningful gospel impact in our community because our church is filled with believers, with disciples doing this? You see, the church grows as one life touches another life with the word of God. Jesus' gospel work compels our gospel mission. We must respond to Jesus' words. So let's respond now to God's word in repentance and faith. What habits in our lives is God confronting? How is God's word encouraging you this morning? Let's take a moment and talk to God about those things now. Let's talk to him.